this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here today with two people that it will be a delight for you all to meet, Trisha and Ben, and they work with the biz inside the business of justice out of Southwest Washington. Welcome to the call, Ben and and Trisha. And I'd like I'd like you both. Welcome to the call, both of you. And I'd like you to start. Uh, we've made a prior arrangement for Ben to start and introduce what it is that we're going to be talking today and to give us a background in what his background is as an emergency provider. And then Trish is going to talk about her background as a shelter and systems peer counselor type person. So go ahead. Welcome to the call, Ben. All right. Thank you, Joy. Um, yes, my name is Benjamin Hoppy. Um, currently, I'm employed in um, the ED and emergency department at a local hospital here. Um, I'm a social worker. I have a master's of social, uh, social work degree. Um, I'm also a licensed substance use disorder counselor. Um, background wise, yep, grew up in addiction, um, you know, mental health challenges, uh, family and myself. Um, <clears throat> I've been a tattoo artist probably for the last 25 years. I've since retired and decided to go to school. Um, kind of what's interesting is that I, um, am not a high school graduate, don't have a GED or a diploma. Um, as we were talking earlier, Joy, about um, you know, kind of, I'll just speak frankly, kind of the hustle um, that individuals who may have a background in, you know, using drugs and alcohol, I turned my hustle to more positive attributes of my life. So, yep, I hustled my way through college without a high school diploma or a GED, um, working on a doctorate degree in organizational psychology at the moment. Wow. Yep, yep, work um, at the ED. Um, doing social work, helping people with substance use and, you know, mental health challenges. And I used to work for Core Health, which is where uh, Trish currently works. Um, yep, uh, supervised peers, uh, mental health therapists, uh, the director of the drug and alcohol program. So I transitioned over to um, the emergency department. So that's wow, where I am. Wow, that's, that's quite a background. So what, just really quick, what turned your life around? What made you decide to change your, change your, uh, background. It was, I've always been a helper, you know, like we all, like we hear people in, in, you know, these types of helping industries, people always wanted to talk to me and tell me their problems. I just always had that always been able to really connect with people quick, you know, just compassion, empathy, honesty, um, transparency, all of those, all of those wonderful, wonderful things growing up, even while I was using uh, drugs and alcohol, I was just that kind of person. So I accidentally got clean. Um, I'm from California <laughs> Bay Area, and um, uh, life wasn't going well. 
Um, a friend of mine ended up moving up here to Washington and he said, why don't you come up and visit? I hear you're uh, still running and gunning and not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So come and visit. And so um, I drove up for just what was supposed to be a weekend. And I think we're about 12 years later and I just never went back to California. I actually, um, I couldn't get a job here, couldn't get hired um, uh, because of work history. I've only tattooed at that point. Um, no employment history, no rental history. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of times, oh, you're from California, huh? So I, you know, there was kind of that that stigma. I'm covered in tattoos also. So I just had that image. Well, um, that friend who brought me up just said, hey, why don't you just enroll in college and you'll get some financial aid and just kind of hustle that and, you know, use that to get an apartment or whatever you need to do to get on your feet. So I enrolled in college, you know, haven't been to school in 20 something years and took my very first class with a bunch of teenagers. It was really awkward. <laughs> and after that first class was done, I went right to the financial aid department and I said, OK, where's my check? And they said, well, the rules are, uh, sir, is that you have to, um, you know, go to class for 30 days before we, we release that, you know, those funds. And um, I was like, you know, geez, that that's kind of rough. That sucks. I thought I'd get this money and run. But so within that 30 days, I realized that I love to learn. I'm actually smart. And it just. I, I haven't stopped since. So I think I've been going to school for, I think about probably 10 years straight. Um, wow. And it, it was that 30 day holding period of, of trying to hustle some funds to survive that led me onto the path that I am. And actually I started as, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to help. So I figured, you know what, I'm going to take classes on how to be a firefighter uh, paramedic. And um, basically that first quarter, the instructor was like, listen, at the time I was pretty devastated, but he said, listen, you don't fit in. Um, as you can see, everyone around you, they're young, they're, their dads are firefighters, you know, this and that, you, you're not going to make it. So you might want to try to find something else to do. Um, so I looked at the program and saw a drug counselor. And at that point, I, I was probably, well, um, weeks clean. You know, wow. so after using for most of my life, I mean, starting at probably about the age 10. Um, and so I was just brand new clean and I figured, you know what, I'm going to be a drug counselor. And here we are. So it went from, you know, a degree in, in um, substance use disorder counseling to um, a degree in um, um, human, development. human development, then to a degree, a uh, master's in social work and now a uh, doctor of psychology and organizational psychology so wow talk about a story so that is like from black to white if you want to use that analogy absolutely yeah actually that's like a story from one reality to the other completely different reality and that's amazing so why don't we switch over to trish here and trisha why don't you tell us your story because it's it's quite a bit different also from Ben's. Yeah, so um, my story is I was a very good kid growing up, uh, wanted to please my dad, um, had some definite attachment issues, never did any drugs in high school, never, an overachiever, we can say, to please. 
turned 18, went down to Mexico, got drunk and didn't stop drinking until I was pregnant. So at 25 was when I stopped drinking. Um, But in that time I had gotten a fourth degree assault charge, a DUI, malicious mischief, and, and really didn't relate it back to obviously the drinking because my drinking wasn't the problem. It was everybody else's issue that they couldn't do what I wanted them to do. Um, so I got pregnant, uh, got, I stopped drinking, uh, had my children. And then about a year after having them, um, I thought I could, you know, just, just, um, smoke meth and sell heroin and not drink and like life would be good. So I had all of these good plans still. Um, street crimes. She thought, had goals. I did. Street crimes thought that that wasn't appropriate. So they arrested me. Um, they put me in jail and um, I was in jail over. So I got arrested on a Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So it was a God shot that I couldn't get bailed out until Monday. I had to sit in there and uh, think about what I, you know, what I had done. But also I had no idea what I was being charged with. I had no clue what my charges were. I had no idea what they knew. And so I just sat in there in fear of, am I just going straight to prison? Am I, um, I had never, you know, none of that had ever happened to me. And so um, when I got bailed out on that Monday, my charges didn't qualify for drug court because they said I had intent to deliver. Um, but I didn't want that, those felony chart, you know, I didn't want that. Um, I didn't want to give up my right to vote. I didn't want to give up my right to possess or own a gun. Like I didn't want to give my rights up. So I wrote the prosecutor. I begged, please give me a chance. If you give me a chance, I promise you, I will not let you down. I will not, I will make this program look good. I will do whatever I can. Um, and, and they let me in, uh, when I graduated the entire street crimes, um, team took the day off and came and stood in the back of my graduation and watched me. Um, you know, it's, it, it, that drug court is what changed my life. Um, the opportunity. So are you saying that the fourth degree assault, the malicious mischief, all of that stuff went away or was that a separate charge? Is that a separate incident with law enforcement? Yes. So those were all separate. Um, What I did with the fourth degree assault, the DUI and the malicious mischief, I diverted all of them. Um, And so I had the DUI, couldn't stop drinking still, got the fourth degree um, assault, domestic violence and the third degree malicious mischief. They did a they rolled it in to my DUI gave me a stipulated continuance. The judge said, you show up here one more time, ma'am, you're done. And, um, and so I knew that's why I knew I couldn't drink. I knew I couldn't drink because I was going to be done, but I had some other ideas. And so I got off of that. That's all taken care of. Have my kids immediately. Um, you know, two months after I want to start smoking pot again. I want to, I had my own stuff I thought I could do. Um, and, and on top of that postpartum depression, because I have 15 year old identical twins You know, 15 years ago, postpartum wasn't really a big thing. It wasn't researched. It wasn't treated. Um, And so I treated it with drugs and alcohol and whatever else I could. And so 30 years old, I end up in drug court. And um, yeah, I I graduated and I was miracle award twice. Uh, Took me only 12 months. 
And um, after I graduated, that's when I started working for Community House on Broadway as a house manager. And uh, where's that at? Community that's in Longview, Washington. Okay. Came in there, um, took a $3 pay cut from what I was doing before, but what I was doing before wasn't giving me a lot of fulfillment. And um, so I went from house manager, case manager, um, and then to a peer support counselor. And from my background, the CEO, Frank Morrison, actually the executive director of the community house, Frank Morrison, he um, would ask me questions, you know, why is this happening? Why are these people doing this? Why, you know, how come they're faking UAs? How do they fake UAs? Um, and, and not in a, in a punitive way, but so we could help, so we could stop these, these kinds of behaviors and actually address the issue. Awesome. Let's take a quick break yep. because you're moving into the next next yeah. phase, which is to tell us what is it about your careers that's so fascinating. And I'd like you to finish, Trish, when we start again and finish your story. I'll be right back. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our Restorative Community Coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center Project or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at therestorativecommunity.org. Welcome back. We're listening to Ben and Trish talk to us about what their life was like before, what it's like now, and where they're going. So step two is, Trish, tell us about your experience starting with the community house on Broadway and how Frank started to ask you questions and how that provoked this whole other body of knowledge because that's the lived experience that matters. Go for it. Yes. Um, so Frank Frank started to see um, that when a peer support counselor worked alongside a clinician to help a client meet their treatment goals, there was a much better chance of them building a foundation of recovery and and um, and succeeding. Um, and so we we started implementing um, implementing peers and um, encouraging. And, and what happened was the community house didn't have any services inside of it. And, and he had adopted five children with mental health issues and ah, he knew yeah. that there was a need. And so he, nobody would come in, nobody would, would, you know, serve the purpose. And so he said, I'm going to start core health. Um, well, and hold on, hold on, back up one second. Yeah. When I interrupted you the first time is you said he started asking you questions like, why do people with UAs, what are those kinds of questions that he was asking you? Because he didn't know what you were doing. Oh yeah, you know, um, what what is needed in recovery? Um, why do people go to meetings? What happens in NA meetings? Um, how are you staying clean? How are you continuing to do um, what you're doing? And um, and so a lot of those answers were um, things that I had I had done in treatment. Right. So um, MRT, I was an arguer. I wanted to argue pe with people. I wanted to know why you wanted me to do things. I didn't trust anybody, not a single person. And so you had to explain to me why you wanted me to do this stuff. But in MRT, it's the complete opposite. What's MRT? Um, it's it's <clears throat> MRT is moral recognition therapy. And I mean, it's a program. It started in prisons. It's if I can remember and explain it right. It's it's uh, 
it's kind of a moral inventory. Yeah. And just kind of working through their steps, working through the steps. And it's really strict. It's, there's no movement. You have to, you know, kind of go, go through these steps and it's it's a way learning to recognize moral violence or moral violations or moral variables actually learn the, the, what is morality, what is character, what is truth. Yeah. Moral deficiencies, bringing those to light, you know, working through those things, honesty, um, inventory, you know, so yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful program. Um, There's a lot of resistance in the beginning, but that's what the facilitator does is moves people through the program. So part of your work, Trish, when working with Frank was educating him about the real life on the streets and the real issues that you'd live through. And his was, how do I turn it into a program? Because I've got five people that we're working with and we want to build this institution. So continue. Yeah, absolutely. So what en- what ends up happening, right, is somebody comes into the shelter um, and I would, you know, they, they don't have any clean time. They don't have any, any moral compass, any balance. Um, and so it was a, it, it's a, it, what I got to do with Frank um, is show him and kind of explain to him what, an, what somebody who coming off the street needs, right? Somewhere safe, but we also need boundaries. We need to be um, told what to do and guided. You know, um, there has to be structure, and um, and and then the we have 39 peer counselors now, and the way we got that many peer counselors is because we hire people who come through the community house. So, in a in an episode before this, you had John Fitzpatrick on your show, mm-hmm. um, and, and John came straight from work release to the community house, went through our program went through our housing program. He then moved out, got a different job. And then I saw him driving down the road, headed to an interview. And I pulled him over and I said, where are you going? He said to interview. I said, why aren't you interviewing for me? I need you. I need you. (laughs) Yeah. If you can make it through that program and you get out and you're successful, I need that because the next person walking in needs to be with you and you're going to say, I did this too. And there's nothing more powerful than someone showing up saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. And John or Christina or any of my peers that have gone through that program, walking over and saying, absolutely you can. And it's not forever, but look what I'm doing now. I work here now. And I was right where you were two years ago, walked in here with not a hope in my heart. And here I am. And so our team is called the Hope Dealers. We went from dope dealers to hope dealers. <laughs> and this is what we do. Yeah. Seriously, that's awesome. And so yeah. Ben, you ended up working with, with them as one of these hope dealers too, right? Um, yeah, I was never a peer, um, but I was. Yeah. You know, uh, honestly, absolutely. My my experience um has carried me through everything. Um, it allows me to really help and connect with people the same way. So yeah. I was at core also for for a while. Right. And so peer support counselors need to have a clinical supervisor uh, Mm -hmm. and and so an MHP level. And it's also extremely recommended that they have lived experience because peers are we're we're different. You Mm -hmm. know, we have a different education. We didn't go to traditional school, but we definitely owe the justice system thousands and thousands of dollars 
Um, and we need somebody to understand that those thousands of dollars earned a really, really credible lived experience Tuition. <laughs> in that industry, in that system. There's nobody else who knows how to navigate the prison system, the jail system, the court system better than somebody who's been through it and had to fight for their lives. And, and, and you don't get that when you go to college. Not that, that it's better. It, it just has its place. When you put an educated person like, let's say, Ben, with someone who's been in that system, that is a team that you you just can't beat. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're looking for with the Restorative Community Coalition. We've been looking for the funding. We've been looking for the development program. We've been looking for how we can fit in because we've been marginalized as a nonprofit because everybody we work with is lived experience and we don't necessarily have the same kind of skill set that you guys have developed between uh, Frank and yourselves and a professional clinician. I mean, the combination is quite mm -hmm. exciting. Absolutely. So tell us the difference now between the two and, and what this emergency uh, intervention piece is as different from this other piece. And I don't... So yeah. yeah, I'll I'll kind of leave the or lead it in. Um, yep. So Ben was working part time at the emergency department as a um, social worker. And so he would see a lot of the same people we would see. Well, we got two contracts um, for outreach. So one's called Peer Pathfinder and one's called Path. And what happens now is I have a dedicated person that works in that program. They go to the hospital every day at 9 a.m. And they see what cases that they have that have been referred to that program. And so Ben deals with the, the people that come in and he sees it on a whole nother side of the, how the police are bringing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, uh, emergency departments. Yes, the police, you know, we 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 get our, our patients from from a lot of different places. But the beautiful thing about being connected with Core Health and Peer Pathfinder program and the PATH program and Trish and, and knowing the peers and working with them is it allows for me to have the perfect referral source. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, usually, you know, I got I have to work with the doctors on a safe discharge and things like that. So, being able to, you know, there's nothing, sometimes, most times, there's nothing really that I can do for somebody in those hours that they're at the emergency department. I need to be able to, go ahead. So this is like, in some cases, this is the point of first contact that Absolutely. someone who's having trouble yep. encounters the legal system and encounters the spot, and I'm going to talk about this, most people don't, but at the point of first contact with law enforcement or the hospital or emergency, mm -hmm. that's the point in business where a person becomes the fiduciary responsibility of a municipality or a corporation, Absolutely. and they take ownership of your corpus, not your corpse, your living corpus, and now they've got trading rights and dealership rights at Absolutely. that point. So I don't yes. know if you wanted expected me to talk about that, but that's a real core tipping point where we can take people outside of the addiction and destruction kind of the equation and move them to a different course. Would absolutely. It's, yeah, I would. I would absolutely agree with that. And it's a revolving it's a revolving process. So, mm -hmm. you know, like the beginning of my shifts, always I check the jail roster and I see who's in there. Um, who just got released, and I can pretty much, we know our community very well, 
can pretty much tell, I can pretty much tell who I'm about to see in the ED um, based off of releases from, from our jail. So um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't know how to explain it, but once I get a hold of, of people, if I can divert them um, to especially these resources at, at Core Health and Trish and her team, um, it, it's, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it, it, I mean, it's proven, I could see it, that it, it reduces recidivism, you know, um, to the jail population. Some people it takes more than once, but um, yeah, having that referral resource and I know these people in their heart and I know these resources, I know there's follow-up. Um, it's a, it's a beautiful handoff. Because the alternative is somebody comes in um, and, and they're just given a referral. They're made an appointment and they, and then they say, okay, well, this is your appointment. You need to make it. Um, and you know, good yeah, luck. That's rare. And so with this model, uh, we get the name of the person that needs to make that appointment. We go, you know, and if they're homeless, it's like, okay, they hang out behind Safeway yeah. or they hang out in this air, this general area. And we go there, yeah. um, we find them and we get them to where they need to go in an effort to have them not show up to Ben's emergency room again. Mm -hmm. Or jail. Well, yeah. That's really critical because in um, an earlier episode before the one I did with John, I was talking with a father whose daughter had had a fentanyl overdose and he didn't know anything about it. I mean, he had no experience. He didn't know she was on fentanyl. He didn't know what that overdose was going to look like. They did CPR, got him to the hospital. He went through the hospital emergency system. And at the end, you know, four or five hours later, they had him on, on her on Narcon. She's fine. She's walking around again. She's released to his his situation. And he takes home and he's going, yeah, now what? I don't get it. What am I supposed to do? What are signs? What are symptoms? Where do I go? They gave him a list of stuff and everything he called on didn't help. Yeah. And he said, yeah. I was just devastated. I don't know what to do. Yeah. And so you're talking about being yeah. able to be there at this point, help the family, help the person, help them bridge the gap from whatever accident or mistake they ended up in right? Yeah. Well, to reality yeah. again. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Jo well, Joy, so I've worked in a number of behavioral health organizations. And usually the theme is, you know, you have to come to us, walk through the door, we'll help you. Uh, you, you didn't show up, that's on you, good luck, you know? Yeah. And the, the, this model, especially with this, with this peer program, the, this model, it's, it's, they don't wait for, a, for, for somebody to walk through the door. They go and find, find these people. And, and not give up and just keep pushing, 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 you know, rather than just waiting for somebody to finally get it or get tired enough to, to actually, you know, want to change their lives. It doesn't, people fall, you know, people are homeless and they're using a lot of times because they're homeless and they're using because of mental health challenges and all these things. So waiting for somebody to walk through the door doesn't really work. So let's take another break. At the Restorative Community Coalition, we are seeking donors and legacy contributions for our Restore Life Center. To learn more about the Restore Life Center project or donate directly, contact us at info at the restorative community.org 
or visit our website at www.therestorativecommunity.org and click on the donate button. So let's start back at that point where that is really a critical time where somebody's in trouble emotionally, they are confused, they're lost, they're scared, they have no way to reconnect to what's normal or normalizing. And your peer counseling process is critical to that. And in our community, what we've had often is we end up with a lot of volunteers who are working in the field because we don't have a strong program like you're talking about. We've got a sort of a mishmash of programs. And last year in Whatcom County, the count is that we had 64 people die as some form of you know, homelessness or loss to the community. And a lot of people have this stigma that if you won't come into our programs and if you don't abide by our rules and they created the rules Mm -hmm. that exclude anybody, it sounds like you guys are actually working with people who may still be in the addiction cycle and they may have problems and they may be homeless and they really do need the personal support before you can get them on the path of recovery. So talk to me about that a little bit more. Yeah. So um, the two outreach programs are completely about building rapport and working with uh, individuals to um, motivate them to want to get into services. So it can be months that that they just aren't, you know, nope, nope, nope. But we still go out there. We take them um, warming packs. We take them food. We open our doors um, and, and, in the hope that when they're ready, that's what we're going to do. Now, I would like to, um, if this is an appropriate time, talk about one of the breaks, the gaps in the system that could make our job more effective. And that's the, the, the fact that when somebody goes into jail, their insurance is cut off. So when they're in jail, we as a behavioral health agency that bills Medicaid cannot go see them. Now, in my mind, that is the prime time we should be seeing them. They're sitting still. They're safe. They're Clean. getting. They're fed. Um, you know, clear mind because hopefully they're not doing drugs in jail. Um, and that's when we should be able to get in, make a plan, find somewhere for them to go, do an assessment on them, have a, a release um, plan set up, and have somebody there waiting for them to pick them up and get them to a safe place. Because here in our town, you go one way to a safe place or you go the other way back to addiction. And it's just a split second decision that you make when you walk out of those doors at jail. So if you don't have anybody waiting to help you and you're all alone, I mean, in my mind, I'm gonna go get loaded because I don't even wanna think about that. But if I have some, yeah, if I've got somebody waiting there that knows what I've been through, that wants to help me, I, I might make a different choice. But we don't even have that option right now. We don't even have that capability. Wow, that's a really, really critical comment. And we're going to come back on another episode and we're going to talk some more about how that could happen in any city, anywhere, because this is what you're talking about in your town is the same thing we're talking about in our town. We're talking about it in virtually every town everywhere. And one of the biggest problems that we have in the business of justice is that the mass incarceration industry and the growth of the jail industry can just absolutely pile on and it creates massive tax debt, a huge tax load. 
and the destruction of entire communities. Like in California, I think I did research at one point, and they built like 22 prisons in the same period of time that they built one college. It was insane. Mm-hmm. And so reversing this process of mass incarceration and reversing the funnel that's driving people to opioid addiction, fentanyl addiction, abuse, mental illness, that's a problem in America. And we need to turn it around. So what you just put your finger on is a really important thing. And I have not heard anybody articulate it as you just did. So it's going to keep coming. (laughs) So what else is the key in the middle of that? Do you have a solution for how that could happen? Do you have an idea for that? Are you planning on it? What are you doing? Um, Well, it needs to be, there is talk about it in legislature to keep insurance active for the first 30 days so that the habitual, um, you know, reoffenders that are continuing to go in uh, will be able to be seen. Um, we've been talking with our legislators down here. Um, also, we really are trying to um, focus on the youth. You know, right now, I feel a lot of what we're doing is um, trying to change behaviors of adults who, and, and not that it's um, a bad focus by any means, but if we get these juveniles who don't have a criminal record yet, who haven't committed a felony, who can have a chance to turn 18 and join the military if they want to, or run for Congress or become something rather than being tagged with a a felony that's already, you know, destroyed their whole future. um, We really need, we need to focus on the kids. Um, We need to focus on the jails and going in to see people when they're steady, when they're sitting there, when they've been fed, when, Um, They have a clear mind Um, and then wrapping up services and being there when somebody is released. I can't say it enough that it makes me sick that individuals are released from prison or jail without insurance, without anywhere to go. um, And just said, here you go. You know, good luck. So hope you figure it out. Don't come back. I mean, a setup for failure if I've ever heard of it in my in my entire life. I, yeah. I don't get it. And why not capitalize on that time that they are sitting there with fed, mental health warm. services? Yeah. With it's a perfect employment, yeah. with you know. Yeah. So when you guys are talking about the peer mentoring, do you also go? I mean, what do you do in peer mentoring? What if people move into your house, for example? What yeah. is the program of helping them prepare to be released? What would that look like? Oh man, we, so um, when, what I've started at CORE is um, supportive employment. I started supportive housing um, and both of those programs help people to gain employment and maintain employment, um, advocate for felons who have backgrounds, advocate for people who have bad credit scores if they're running a credit score, advocate for someone who doesn't have a work history. Um, We teach jobs or, you know, skills. So whether that be being a cook at the shelter and then you've got a skill to put on your resume. Um, we Once you move out of the shelter, we go to your home. If you have anxiety and you can't go grocery shopping, we come up with a plan. So we're going to go grocery shopping. Yeah, we, we'll walk with you. Um, if, if their goal is to do it by themselves at some point, you know, maybe we go in the first time and do the whole shebang with them. And then maybe the next time we go in for 30 minutes and then they finish the shopping trip. Um, we go in their home and teach them how to cook. Uh, we've gone in and cleaned out bed bugs when we've had a bed bug outbreak. 
Um, I mean, we <clears throat> do it all. Yeah. Uh, if you relapse, what we want go into your home we want to move you out hopefully back to the shelter save you the eviction save that relationship with the landlord and get you back on track we don't want to punish you we don't want to be punitive we don't want to say ha 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 um we don't want to say we're not going to help you again we want to save them from getting that eviction get them back in and start again let's start again yeah. Wow, this is fascinating because this is the same stuff that irene the founder of the restorative community coalition has been doing and we've been doing this stuff she's specifically been doing it um we have other volunteers who have worked with us who have learned how to we've been developing this mentoring program we have a, a program for court navigation all of these different things but we've been doing it without funding without a support system to help us do all this pioneering work so it's going to be really fun to spend more time with you guys and build mm -hmm. this this it's almost like mentoring the mentors who are mentoring the mentors who are mentoring the mentors and building a whole yeah. new whole systems approach to getting people completely out of this industry that's making money on punishment and and hurt and build a completely different renewable system of regenerative justice that's yeah. possible it's so exciting to meet you both absolutely um, we have a few more minutes left. Do each one of you want to speak for a minute or two about what we haven't covered in this show that we could cover in a future show or to complete what you wanted to say on this particular call now? Well, so something that came to mind that I just, I don't want to miss coming from a therapeutic standpoint and being a therapist and, and all of those things and working in, in, you know, we were talking about the benefits of a peer support and all of those things. Well, you know, for any therapists that are listening and wondering, like, what is a peer support? What do you know? What do they do, and how 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 would it benefit therapy or anything like that? Well, um, and I, I am in love with with peers. They 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 help the therapeutic process so much. So just real quick, let's say um, us as therapists, um, we know what it's like to work with somebody. Let's say weekly, and we're trying to. Um, you know, there's skill development and things like that. You know, um, somebody leaves, they come back to session and it's like, so how'd that go? What'd you work on? Well, nothing, you know, and I still want to complain about everything or I still have the same challenges as I did last week. Um, so something that's really important to me from my perspective of, of uh, being a therapist is um, any skill development. These, the peer supports go in between therapy sessions, basically, um, and the communication between the therapist and the peer is so beautiful in that they know, we know what the client is currently working on. So um, in between sessions, they're working on these skills with these clients. So when we come back to session, we're just continually and constantly building from the last session. We're not having to go back and revisit and keep that going. The peers are the, are the in-between you know, team, we're all a team, but they're the in-between that just keep facilitating this change. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it just seems it's, it's so much better to have a peer support with, uh, in the therapy process. Um, yeah, it just, it's, it's a exponential growth as opposed to just a kind of a, um, you know, I've been to therapy for so many years and, and, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's such an important piece to the whole therapeutic process and the whole substance use disorder counseling process. It's 
It's such a beautiful program. So it's actually caring. What I heard you say is caring, compassion, and companionship almost. It's like having company as you're rebuilding relationships with yourself, rebuilding relationships with the community around you, rebuilding relationships that have been broken in your in your family and in the community and with your job. It's like it's like you're the glue. You're building glue, like this space between all these rough and fractured edges of society. Mm-hmm. It's like you're building the viscosity and the the space between things to just make it easier to recover, come back, own your soul, and start to do things in the community and for yourself that heal. Yeah, I mean, all of us uh, that have that have gone through addiction know what it feels like to be alone. And we know what it feels like to um, show up to the emergency room and have a picked out face and a doctor just write you off as an addict. Um, But really you have something wrong. And when a peer is there, they, as sad as it is, they give a little bit more credibility to the person who's hurting. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I did an interview a couple of weeks ago with Lee Rush, and he's with the, the West Side Heroin and Opioid Task Force in, out of Chicago. And one of the things he did was really help me understand the stigmas and the beliefs that we have that block us from even seeing a pathway forward. And one of those stigmas was the idea that you had, Trish, about I could be doing meth and heroin as long as I'm not drinking, I'm okay. You know, that's one of the, these are false beliefs. And then other people have stigmas about it. And then we have rules and regulations that have stigmas. And then you've got monetary systems that come in with a difference. So stigmas are everywhere. And so you help to pull those, all those barriers down and put it all back together. It sounds like, is that, is that yeah. a good absolutely yeah so do you want to embellish on that trish and what is it that you guys what could you use now in as far as being able to or let's let's ask this question this way what is the opportunity we have in the nation right now to create massive change what do you see as the way forward okay well just a small um narrow lens um with peers in general I watch a lot of our local um, court uh, that's broadcasted via Zoom Um, and our public defenders are so overwhelmed with cases that half the time they don't even know the person's name. Uh, They're defending when they show up for their court date. I feel peer support should be able to talk with individuals who are facing charges, advocate for them, um, even even looking into different sentencing um, guidelines, uh, looking at options for treatment, um, but having somebody to be able to sit down person to person, have like a mediation, and then take that to the public defender. So, you know, it's it's less expensive to um, be a peer support than it is to be a lawyer. Um, we have the lived experience. We know what people are facing. And we know the system. We we have more resources probably than the public defender. Uh, And in our court system, you know, you're pretty much bullied into taking a plea. 
And, and these pleas need to be more focused and individualized on the person that's creating, you know, committing this crime to help them to not commit that crime again. Um, and that's not happening. So what's really interesting about that is when we started to do, we tried to do some restorative justice with some public defenders and we started to do some work in different cases. And, and there's all different kinds of reasons why you can't help here and you can't talk here and you can't do this and can't do that. And these are, it's interesting because some of the rules around that have to do with actual laws. Some of them have to do with the public defender's office themselves. Some of it has to do with the prosecutors making it impossible for public defenders to actually defend anybody. And then one day I was working with one woman who was the public defender. And one of the things she said is that I actually, she's prohibited from being able to help her client who's inside the jail get help from certain things. Like they're not allowed to tell them to go do this or this or this. Well, if the person inside doesn't have somebody outside talking to them, and it all screwed up, got, got screwed up during COVID. So it really backlogged. It slows down the prosecutions. It slows down the defense. It it absolutely terrorizes the people inside. We have a couple of clients inside the Whatcom County Jail right now that have been there for a year and a half. And that's not supposed to be allowed. I mean, that is absolutely, they're supposed to have a right to a to a speedy trial. And yet they have had continuance after continuance after continuance and it's backlogging the system while these tri people are trying to negotiate their way out. And mm -hmm. they just said, just take me to trial. And the prosecutor and the defender couldn't negotiate. And there was no one in the middle. So being able to do restorative justice, mediation, peer support in that space between where the law doesn't allow it or the system doesn't allow it sounds like a really good idea. Yeah, because we're not just out here willy nilly, you know, we have to apply to the Department of Health, they do a background check on us, they see what we've done, and, and they um, give us a credential. So if they're willing to credential us and, and, um, you know, give us that opportunity, then we shouldn't be limited, we shouldn't be um, given restrictions because um, of money making industry of jail. You know, we shouldn't. It, we yeah. should be able to help individuals. So, awesome! This has been an incredible conversation. Is there anything left that that's, that we haven't said because we got off on a little dog trail there? That was awesome. But what else do you want to say before we close up? We're excited. We're absolutely excited and thrilled, and um, I'm I'm extremely proud of John and uh, him connecting yeah. us. Um, you know, I, I just can't wait to continue working with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Do you have any last words, Ben? Oh, no, I'm good. I think everything's basically been said for this one. I can't wait to speak again. And yep, I just want to say how proud I am of John. He's a beautiful man. Yeah. So you guys are building the, the bridges between law and justice and the space between us mm -hmm. so that we can actually serve humanity. Thank Absolutely. you so much for coming on the call and thank you audience for listening. We'll talk to you on the next episode. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At the restorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect 
at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.